Hello, this is Russell Davis with The Art of the Artist, the series that invites performers and writers at the top of their game from any or all of the entertainment disciplines to tell us how they see the art they practice. And this time, I'm in the presence of Dame Diana Rigg and we'll be discussing the art of being and remaining oneself in the midst of the most variegated performing life imaginable. Dame Diana, welcome. Thank you. People talk about trying everything except circuses, but I wouldn't be surprised to find that you've tried that as well and made a success of it. Did you think you've done every type of performance you'd like to try? Yes, more or less. I'd like to have tried more classical elder women's parts, the Shakespearean ones. They just evade me, which is a shame because I'm about right for them now. I think if you turn to sort of popular stuff, they tend to not approach you for the classical. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Musicals, you came to fairly late. I did, I did. I came to musicals because I thought, much like your introduction, that we should be able to do everything. Mm. And indeed, the Americans are rather better at it than we are because uh, they, most of them, are talented musically as well as the straight stuff. And they continue, even after they've left drama school, to take lessons in singing and dancing as well. So I thought, hmm, I'll have a go. But my goodness, it's tough. It's really tough. Mm. It's (laughs) starting the song. You see the conductor in the pit and the baton raised and then down goes the baton. And if you haven't got your foot on the step of the London to Edinburgh Express. (laughs) You're left behind and it's absolute misery. Misery. When it comes to diving out of one genre into another, as you did, for example, when you finished the first series of The Avengers, I imagine, you started rehearsing immediately at the RSC, I think, again. Yes. Uh, In a way, it was like defying the class system of uh, showbiz at that time. Oh, yes, it was, because they scorned television, very much so. You were demeaning yourself, you were, you know... Peter Hall said something, you know, she does have a future as long as she doesn't waste herself on television or something. Mm. It wasn't because I was particularly far-sighted. I wasn't. But having done The Avengers, the first thing I did was to go back to Stratford to do Twelfth Night to put bums on seats, to prove that that's what television does for you as has subsequently been proved by all the succeeding generations. It is absolutely wonderful, particularly now. I see young actors like the ex-Doctor Who filling theatres, playing Shakespearean roles, and it absolutely thrills me because through their popularity, they make Shakespeare accessible for the young. And that's always been a bit of a problem. Since you're clearly an unusual person, even within the unusual category of artists, the temptation is to look for unusual circumstances that might have formed you at an early age. And there is that element available, as it were, in your Indian upbringing, at least partly Indian, because it alternated with periods at school back here in the mother country. Not hideously awful, but... I don't know, fairly awful, weren't they? There was an element of do the girls haul about these institutions. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was tough in that respect, but my parents were wonderful. And the older I get, it's quite interesting, the more I think about them and I'm grateful for their nurture and kindness and love. But uh, you were thrown in the deep end with absolutely no preparation at all. Parents didn't explain to children in those days what was happening. 
I mean, when I became a parent, I felt it absolutely necessary for me to explain to Rachel every step of the way what was happening to her, to me, in terms of my work, how it would affect her, etc., etc. But I was sent to a boarding school and I had no idea what a boarding school was. And I'd never seen so many white girls under one roof before in the dining room. And the noise was unbelievable. And then, of course, came dormitory life, which was <laughs> absolutely amazing. Many years later, I came across one of my old school reports from that time, and it said, Diana is tiresome in the dormitory. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever compared notes with other notable ex-India people? I'd love to hear you converse with, you know, Cliff Richard or Ben Kingsley or yeah, Eng- Engelbert be... Humperdinck even, you know. Yeah, but... and Felicity Kendall. Oh, yes, of And course. Tom Stoppard. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'd love to do that because where they came from were completely diverse. I mean, Felicity's um, story is absolutely fascinating, travelling around India, playing Shakespeare with her father's company. I'm just wonderful. You never seem to doubt that you can continue to be yourself, however bizarre the play, the film, the part, the circumstances, the, the climate, if you like. You're always going to be able to adapt to it some way, is that right? And stay upright. I think it's because of one's upbringing and uh, several upheavals and um, you have to find the still small centre, don't you, when all around you is changing. You acted at school, Shakespeare too, you were Titania, I think, in the dream, were you? And... Uh... Which I'm sure you were right for, but in my experience, it's always given to the tallest girl I anyway. Was, I was pretty lumpen. <laughs> well, you say that, but clearly you were, you know, it was in an imposing way. And athletic too, was that part of no, it? No, no, I was never really athletic. I should have been. I think I was too lazy. And as for voice, were there things to iron out in that? Because you were I didn't have an accent. No. Uh, my parents didn't, and so I didn't. Uh-huh. And there was, a sort of, there was quite a broad, you could spot it from time to time, A bit of a Yorkshire A from time to time, but not much. So what did Radha have to do to you? Anything at all? Well, it sort of, I had so little knowledge of the theatre and what the theatre involved. It educated me in that respect, but it wasn't terribly good when I was there. It was a bit of a finishing school, as well as everything else. Really? And the teachers were retired actors and actresses, and of course that's all very well, but it can't just be a choice after an active career. You have to have a passion and a desire to communicate to these young, and not all of them did. It actually seems a very classical beginning, doesn't it? Because after that you had several years of appearances with the Royal Shakespeare Company, which sounds conventional, but it wasn't that, because the RSC was just becoming a permanent company wasn't it, at that time, so it was quite a pioneering thing to do. Well, Peter Hall was a pioneer. Mm. Um, he took over from Glenn Byam Shaw, who was in charge that first season that I was there, and it was absolutely astonishing, the first season. It was, for me, because um, Glenn Byam Shaw wanted to go out with a bang, so he had Charles Lawton doing Bottom, he had Olivier doing Coriolanus, Dame Edith Evans playing Volumnia, he had Paul Robeson playing Othello. Oh, yes. Albert Finney was in the cast. I mean, it was an extraordinary season to be walking on. And my goodness, I learnt a great deal in walking on and just watching other people. Mm. And then Peter took over and 
decided to form a company and gave out three-year contracts, which meant that as a young actor, you felt secure enough that the organization was guiding you and nurturing you and developing you. And it was a quite wonderful time, and I really take my hat off to Peter Hall for having that. You've said in more recent times that you wish the National Theatre would do much the same. Well, they don't, and they call themselves a company, and they aren't, and Mm. they don't develop the young. And I feel passionately that it's within a company that you should be developing the future great talents, and they don't do it. Very fine. I'm Russell Davis, by the way, talking to Dame Diana Rigg, to whom that seemed to come as a bit of a surprise. I can't remember (laughs) doing it. But then, you know, when you're as old as I am, there are lots of stuff back then that you don't recall. The only thing that strikes me listening to it is, God, how wonderful Shakespeare's words are. Mm. How absolutely wonderful. And he did. He sort of found fresh ways to describe love. Uh, and each freshness had a, 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 a an application. It was just wonderful. As we've said, you went into television. It was a case of recasting, wasn't it? Because Elizabeth Shepherd, who's still with us, she she played the part in the Avengers for what an episode and a half, and then it I didn't seem so. to be working. Yeah, and and you were stepped into breach from yes. How did that news arrive? It was a bit like you know the new Doctor Who. You have to jump through all these hoops and do interviews and stuff, which I was signally ill-equipped for. And suddenly you're thrust into the public eye, which, again, I was unprepared for. And then things settled down. And we generally worked pretty hard for that series. I remember the car used to collect me at half past five and I'd drive up to Elstree and sit in the makeup chair for God knows how long. It seemed forever for somebody who was quite young and didn't really need touching up all that much, but mm, right. yes. they did. And then we'd work uh, a 12-hour day. It was a remarkable concoction, wasn't it? Because it was the nearest TV ever got to a kind of Dadaist movement of its own. It, it was very good. Quite weird. Very good. And there was some, uh, there was a lot of fetishism going on. Yes. <laughs> Boots you, you got the feeling everybody leather. was inserting their, their personal fantasies yes. and obsessions and fetishes yes, yeah, into yeah. what was going on. Yes. Clearly you as Emma Peel, short for Man Appeal, as we know, had part of your role defined for you by that name. But did you also contribute, you know, odd preferences of your own? Um, not in terms of storyline or anything like that, but Patrick and I, we got on really well and, and we're deeply fond of each other. And um, sometimes the dialogue was just very joyless and not much fun. And they allowed us to rewrite and spar off each other, which actually makes all the difference. If you feel you've contributed as well as performing, then there's that added um, joy. We should say we were talking about Patrick McNee, your co-star, and it was a reversal of the usual male-female balance, wasn't it? Because he was the one who posed around doing he was a bit al- dapper, almost wasn't he? nothing, you know, curing everything with a deft flick of the umbrella. Yeah. And you were the one who put all the physical graft in. Well, that happened quite by chance because originally it was written for two men. And then they substituted one man for a woman without changing the script. And then suddenly they were given uh, a corded 
uh, the brilliance of giving a woman all, all the um, talents that a man would have, which they didn't really deserve because it was quite by accident that, that it happened. That was almost the last time for some time that you actually got on really well with your leading man, wasn't it? Because you had some fairly difficult ones later on. No. Who are you talking about? Well, the ones in the films, you know, you had uh, George C. Scott was not an easy He was wonderful. Was he? I never complained about George. Mm -hmm. No, no, he, he, he was wonderful. He disappeared off from time to time and I mean, that had nothing to do with, with me. I just used to sit on the side and play Scrabble with, with Paddy Chayefsky, uh, who wrote the piece. Yes. But the only person I really, really had immense difficulty with was George Lazenby because he was a child put in a position that he totally misused and attempted to throw his weight around. And as a result, they never used him again. And I feel... Maybe he could have been helped a little bit more by the production company than he was. I don't know. The paraphernalia of fame um, took you by surprise. Oh, it's a bit, never, didn't it? really, never really interested me. And fan mail and that. Fan sort of mail thing. and all that sort of thing, and and I became a sex object. Is that the word? You, no. Yes. Sex symbol. Yes. I don't think I was ever an object, but a symbol. No. And I found <laughs> that sort of odd. Um, uh, and and something I'd rather not know about. And you were expected to appear in clinging bodysuits. I think so. Yes. Wherever. Yes. yes. Did you have a stock of those, or did you? God no. No. Myself? No. I just wondered whether you were ever prevailed upon to actually appear in them well, outside on... of the studio. Uh, no, no, never. No, 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 I wouldn't do that. It wasn't a vastly well-paid part. That was wasn't. It, it was. Uh, they were very naughty. They got me for absolutely nothing the first season, until I discovered that I was getting less than the cameraman. Ooh. And um, and then they upped it by not very much. Uh, I never made. Everybody assumes you make. You know that you made a fortune. I didn't. And then it went to DVD and all that kind of stuff and merchandising. And I suppose I sh I should be a millionaire on the back of it, but I'm not. And neither is Patrick, um, because in those days, of course, we never dreamt of video. We had yeah. no idea. Mm. And I'm not remotely bitter about it. Life has been kind to me and I've kept working and I think it's ridiculous anyway to get bitter about that sort of thing. And then it becomes a kind of seesaw, doesn't it, between stage and screen for a while, especially after you take on the Bond picture yeah. on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Not an easy moment in the franchise because Sean Connery's just gone. Yeah. And I won't dwell on the George Lazenby casting because you've mentioned it, but if it's true that Cubby Broccoli, the producer, said, we've got a guy here who hasn't done any acting, so we need a really good actress to compensate, I mean, he must have been off his head because you can't take an average between two talents and hope that somehow things will level up. Well, the point is, I knew what I was there for. I was there to steady the ship, as it were. Mm. Um, but, you know, George was very good. He, he, was, he was good. Uh, he wasn't awful on the screen. And as a result, I may be wrong, but I, people tell me, and I'm, I'm not the sort of person to ever pursue this sort of knowledge, but they tell me that this film is one of the most popular ones. Yes. And it wouldn't be popular if George hadn't cut the mustard, but he did. It was just that his behaviour off the set was so appalling that they thought, mm, I don't think we'll bother. So they didn't re-sign him. I have to admit to a feeling that the whole Bond industry is something this country has 
come to pin too many hopes to over the years since that. But to have made the one picture where the so-called Bond girl, a phrase I hate, walks off with it at Bond's expense, that was that was an achievement. Well, it was a beautifully written part and you can't fail if you die in the end and marry Bond and then, then get shot. That's and true, that's yes. There's, there's a lot, <laughs> lot of un- that unique one. things happening there, yes, yes. The other thing I like about the film, apart from yourself, is that John Barry on the music side, had the good taste to offer Louis Armstrong the chance oh, to record the theme song. Yes. And although he was he was pretty weak and ill, he made a very affectionate job of it. It was just beautiful. And mm. do you know something? It took years for that song to become popular. Yes, yes. I don't know why. Sung with great feeling by a, a convalescent Louis Armstrong. He was pretty frail by then, but he did like that song a lot, which I think you can tell. I think it was one of the last ones he did record. It was, really, yes. Yeah. He could hardly play the trumpet at all by then because his lungs had gone, really. Now, it's not as if the stage side of the diner rig output in those times was the conservative part, necessarily, and the film the progressive part, because characteristically you were doing some pioneering on stage too and in the case of Abelard and Eloise it was <laughs> it involved appearing naked on stage now yes. even on films they often clear the set when nakedness is happening yes but in the theatre it's your flesh and several hundred onlookers more in america so what kind of mental preparation does it take to do that to go ahead with it i mean on a film set you can have a a large brandy and here we go. Yes. But you can't do that in the theatre. Well, it's night in, night out, isn't it? Yeah. Keith and I toured England with the play before we went into the West End. And <laughs> the suffice to say, the lighting was very discreet, obviously. Mm. And we approached each other from either side of the stage and then as soon as we reached each other, it was, it was sort of, oh, thank God. <laughs> and then we sank down onto the floor and blackout. Mm. But somebody in Newcastle had bribed the, the electrician. <laughs> and we got centre stage and suddenly the lights, were, the stage was flooded with light. Oh, yeah. You've never seen two actors <laughs> react quicker. Um, Keith clutched his family jewels and I just doubled over. <laughs> <laughs> naughty, naughty. Did somebody get done for that? No, no, no. there was no inquiry at oh, all. Oh, really? No. Terrible. But out of that play came the famous review by John Simon yes. in New York, who wrote... And well, there's some small dispute now about what he did write because the word mausoleum came into... It's, it's traditionally part of the quote, but now I gather there's a revisionist version that says he actually said that you were, quote, built like a brick basilica with insufficient flying buttresses. I think it was basilica. Yes. Yeah. Even for allowing for the fact I'd rather be called a basilica than a mausoleum. Yeah. It's still something I don't think he'd be allowed to say nowadays. Oh, yes, he would. Would he? Well, who's I think stop he'd him? stop himself saying it. No, he wouldn't. Wouldn't he? Oh, goodness, no. People can be as rude as, 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 as ever if they wish. Mm, not quite. And still are. In that way. Well... There's always a desire, I don't quite understand why, certainly not amongst the best critics because they don't go there, but to attack people because of their physique. Mm. And I just think that's cheap and shouldn't be done by critics, you know. <laughs> Long before my very bad notice was a wonderful one for darling Sir John Gielgud, and I think it was as Romeo, one critic wrote about him, he was obviously in tights. <laughs> he said he had the most meaningless legs imaginable. 
John Gielgud said, well, I don't understand what he expected me to do with my legs. Um, <laughs> Meaningless legs is a wonderful yeah, it is, yes, it's a title for something. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But at least you got a book out of it because your famous collection of negative reviews of all the world's actors, No Stone Unturned, a great title. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I turn unstoned, I mean. No, turn unstoned. That's, that, that's the very thing it was the, changed the, from. It, Due for a revised edition, I think. I know. I'm very much hoping. I, I've just got to get down to it and, and update it. I'm really quite evangelical about that book because at the beginning of the book, I write a history of the theatre, obviously in concentrated form, but starting with Thespis getting a bad notice in 860 yeah. from Solon, the lawmaker in Athens. Mm-hmm. And... I feel passionately that we belong to a very long, long line of, of, of people communicating through their art, and it's an honourable and courageous line. Yes. And I made a lecture out of the book, which I now do. The first half is the history of the theatre, and the second half, of course, is much more fun because it contains all these bad notices, which are you know, quite funny. But also some of them are quite touching and ironic. And I do it for theatres that have no subsidy and do it well performance and raise money for them that way, mm. you know, theatres that are desperately in need of money. And I really, really enjoy it. There is one class of journalists with whom you get on far worse than the critics, of course, and that's the opinionated female columnist to whom you've given the wonderful name of Grubettes. Do they belong to the old Fleet Street, do you think, or are there Grubettes still around? Oh, they're still around. They're, they're, they're appalling, absolutely appalling. I've never quite understood, and having travelled the world with plays, etc., and done interviews all over the world, Australia and America and New Zealand and Russia and when I toured with the Royal Shakespeare all those years ago. England are the worst. They've got the worst female journalists in the world. Um, And it seems there is one particular newspaper who employs them because lots of women read this particular newspaper. I think you probably know the newspaper I'm referring to. I think I do. And they seem to enjoy the bitchiness and the cattiness that this newspaper provides. I think it's an aspect of womanhood which is deeply unattractive and I, I wish it didn't exist. But I now avoid lady journalists like the play because the last one that I did actually allow to be interviewed by wrote such rubbish that I had to go to court, which was a hair-raising experience, as you can imagine. Very brave because that can go wrong. And I was told by everybody not to go there and don't touch them. And I was so lonely. I, I, I just felt the truth had to, had to be established. I couldn't live with what she had done to, mm. to me as a person. And I won in the end, but, oh, golly, the process was long. The newspaper dragged it out as long as possible, hoping, I think, so that I couldn't afford it anymore, so that I would be uh, bankrupted. Mm -hmm. Of course, they could afford to do it because they had their team on retainer. Of course. And they were women. Their team, their legal team were women. And I looked at them and I thought, how in God's name do you live with yourself? Mm. Anyway, I won. 
Yes. I think the clinching detail was that she'd said you'd retired, mm -hmm. which was a flat misstatement because you simply hadn't. Absolutely not. But they did follow me to France, photographed me in France with a baguette, saying that I was living the life of recluse in France, and I was shopping for one with this huge baguette under my arm. <laughs> a baguette would be another good name for them, I think. What would your advice be now to a prominent young actress who's getting the grubette? treatment? I'd be very careful of the initial flattery that they start their interviews with. And I would probably have a cassette on the table so that you could always make absolutely certain that the words you said are the words you said and not what they put into your mouth. Because this dreadful young woman put a great deal of words into my mouth, which I had not spoken. And that's what Tony Benn always did in the political sphere. Yeah, they don't like it. No. But they're making money. It's a two-way thing. They are making money. And, fair, and a career. Fair's fair and yeah. a career. And we are getting publicity for a play or a film or a television. It's a bargain between the two of you. But I do believe that it should be conducted with a degree of courtesy and honesty. Are you a natural Sondheimite, do you think? Because he is an acquired taste that I, not everybody acquires. Well, I, I, I love him. Um, A, because he released me so wonderfully, because I've been in, what, three of his shows, um, mm. uh, and I'm not a singer. I can put a number across. Well, you say that, you see, but you've, we've just heard the, yeah, the yeah, contrary. Yeah, not, not soaring notes, let's face it. <laughs> Who needs soaring notes? You put over but a anyway, song. Uh, um, Stephen, you know, he, he really, that's what he wanted from me mm. as opposed to soaring notes. So I felt freed from the guilt of not being able to deliver what I thought he'd want. Musicals, of course, as we said, it, it was a genre that you took a while to get round to. Was Colette the first? Because that didn't work out. Oh, God. Golly, no. no. Uh, I'd, before that, I'd done the film of Little Night Music. Oh, Stephen. that came first. Yes. I think so. Oh, right. Actually, I'm not very good on chronological. Mm. Which way. No, Colette was <laughs> absolute <laughs> disaster. Oh, my God, it was a disaster. Was everything about it disaster? Because you blamed yourself, and I'm sure oh, well, of course. it's never the star's no, fault. No, oh, it is, believe you me. Um, there are certain mitigating circumstances which, you know... I, I won't bore you with, but it just was a disaster. And now I look back on it and, oh, goodness me, we do laugh because my great friend Marty Stevens was in it with me and we have a great hoot about the memory of it now. I tried to make a programme once about Lionel Bart's twang because I, I think failures are fascinating. Oh, yes, they are. But they wouldn't let me because, oh, no, we only want to talk about success. Yes, yeah. But what's it like to be in a a ship that really is sinking. First of all, you learn a great deal you know, about yourself, about what you can and can't do, and about what's wrong with the musical. I could enumerate a lot of things that were wrong with me and the musical, but I will actually hopefully make you laugh a little bit. Colette's mother was called Sidonie. She was an earth mother. Mm. Um, she, she was sort of big and fat and just earth mother. Well, I had, and I won't name her, I had a little, 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 little soprano who had a voice like this, as if she was about to break into song any minute now. And it was hopeless. Oh, Colette. You know, it yes. was just absolutely, that was the first scene for starters. Mm. And um, I could hardly keep a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> 
How long did it last? You oh, not long. We closed in Denver. And I just felt so sorry. Do you know the gypsies mm. in America? I wouldn't have not had the experience for all the tea in China because I noted and admired and loved those gypsies. Yeah. They, they fling themselves heart and soul into their performances and, and they are wonderful. On another topic completely, your daughter Rachel came along. My girlie. Yes, and changed your work habits for quite a while. Yes. I mean, did, did you actually stop or...? I did for, for, for a while when she was small, not for very long, but mm. I wanted to be there. And, and, of course, you have to explain to them what is happening. So I would say, OK, I'm doing a play, Rachie, which means that while I'm rehearsing, I'll be able to take you to school and hopefully collect you from school, but perhaps not always, but I'll be there to put you to bed, that's for certain. Oh, if I'm doing a film, I'll have left the house before you get up, so I can't take you to school, but I'll be there to put you to bed, that's for certain. I mean, I think bedtime's quite important. Mm. Um, matinee days, you know, couldn't do the bedtime thing. But always explain to your child what is happening, what your work patterns are going to be, so that nothing's a shock and mm. that their routine is completely disturbed. Well, you obviously didn't discourage her from playing your own trade, and you have had what I assume was the pleasure of, of working alongside each I other. I loved it, yeah. and I'm so proud of her now. And she was in The Bletchley Girls, and we watched it together, and it was mm. just wonderful. Were you in Doctor Who together? Yeah, we did. Yes. Mark Gatiss wrote it for us, uh -huh. which was great fun because knowing both of us, and he knew that I came from Yorkshire, so he gave me an opportunity to do my Yorkshire accent. <laughs> so you visited Bond once and Doctor Who once. I think that's healthy. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. There's been uh, a lot of rhetoric flying about recently about parts for older women. This is something you mentioned just now. And all kinds of work. I mean, broadcasting work as well for older women. There's not enough of it. And Shakespeare didn't set a very good example there. No, he didn't. Because there isn't much. No, no. The Nurse, Romeo and Juliet, um, Queen Margaret, uh, Volumnia. Uh, yeah, Gertrude. Gertrude. But Gertrude can't be that old, can she? Not really. really. On the other hand, the parts that there are that young women can't play yes. are often peculiarly exhausting. I imagine that Medea was about the most shattering in some ways. Yes, it was, it was, it was. But my God, I'm so grateful that I did it. How lucky. It was a modest production which started at the Almeida and then closed at the Almeida. And then Jonathan Kent and I, I, I said to Jonathan, I kind of, I think it's got an extended life. And we'd been closed about six months, I think, and we approached Bill Kenwright and said, would he pick it up, please? Would he do it again? And he did, bless him, and we toured England. And what was so fascinating was we were playing quite tough places, Newcastle, Plymouth, and places like that. And, of course, initially, just very few people in the house. But wherever we went, it built, yes. which was such a good sign. Then, of course, we came to London, and lucky, 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 we got the Wyndham Theatre, which is the perfect theatre. And it became sellout, and then we went to New York, and it became sellout. And from such modest, modest beginnings, the greatest pleasure to me was a 2,000-year-old play, sellout on Broadway. 
Yes. And I begged the producers to put up Euripides' name up in lights. Yes. And they wouldn't. Ah. And then I offered to pay for it, and they still wouldn't. Oh. The reason being they thought it would put people off. Yeah, I can see them thinking that. Yeah, yeah it was ridiculous. Mm. Wouldn't it have been wonderful? That's great. And it was the talk of the time. I remember it. I remember being in New York then. Of course, you appeared with one of the great monsters of the screen, Elizabeth Taylor. No, she's not a monster. No, but I mean, you know, she seemed... Well, you say it, but it features a very, very good performance by Dee Rigg, but all the all the energy of the thing seemed to be absorbed at the time by the controversy over her changes of shape. In one scene, she was enormous, and the next scene, she was yeah, slim. Yeah, baby, well, every time... She suffered from, from, from really frail health. She, mm. she was not a robust woman. And I shall never forget Florence Klotz, who was the designer who designed this beautiful dress for her in red bugle beads, wringing her hands because Elizabeth yet again had gone to bed. And every time she went to bed, she put weight on. And Florence Klotz said, I can't find any more bugle beads, red bugle beads in Vienna. <laughs> but it seemed at the time that publicity was drowning performance, which was a pity because yours was very, very good, I thought. I don't yeah. think Hal Prince did a very good job, may I say. Well, yes. Has I he, may has he never work since? with Hal Prince <laughs> <again>. <laughs> Whoops, sorry, Hal. We talked about leading men. We didn't mention, we didn't mention Vincent Price. You were very I fond, loved fond of him. I loved him. He was a wonderfully funny, witty, highly civilised man, mm. which is sort of... Wonderful when you think he was he played monsters. Well, he, he played, did, yeah. and he seemed to love it too. Yes. But he was a collector of various things. Oh, yes, he was. Art yeah. and stuff. Art, and, and he knew a great deal about American art. He was a cook. He loved cooking. He was a very much a man of the world. He, he, he lectured and was a dear, dear person. But always content to be a kind of campy actor, a very sort of... I think certainly the film that we made together, he had certain Shakespearean speeches to learn and, mm. and deliver, and I think he did them wonderfully well. And somebody should have given him the opportunity to play a Shakespeare part because he would have loved to do it. Every Day a Little Death, a song about the pains that marriage can inflict. And you've been on both sides of the argument. I you? certainly have. You lived with a but man who was, was married for a long time, yeah. and then a later period your own husband embarked on, a, yes. on an affair which ultimately ended the marriage. In approaching a piece like this, is it any help at all to have been there? No, no, life? because I, I hadn't been there yet. Oh, that's right. Oh, well, I've got my dates wrong in that case. But are there roles where you can call upon autobiography usefully? I think you do. I think you can, if you want. I don't think it's necessarily the answer mm. because there are all sorts of other reasons why you can play a part yeah. other than first-hand experience. But when you see a part that, ah, this is me, is it because you have lived some of it or, or is there some other chemistry? I tell you what, there? Sarah Siddons said something wonderful which I abide by. She said, I look over a part to see if it is in nature and if it is then I know it can be played. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. Not can I play it because I've been there, but if it is in nature. Fair enough. I'll bear that one in mind. 
Where are we today? Game of Thrones is the latest oh, yeah. big thing, isn't it? Yeah. The HBO production. We don't know too much about it yet. Well, yes, it's been on front. for ages. Or behind the times. Well, no, <laughs> we haven't got the necessary channels, some of us. <laughs> but uh, I keep reading that you should have got a Golden Globe Award for oh, it. Oh, listen, they come and they go. It seems to be filmed everywhere. Does that mean you're filmed everywhere? Or is it just no. the exteriors? Um, it's absolutely wonderful. The interiors are done in Belfast. My part of the exteriors are done in Croatia, which I'd never been to before and have fallen in love with. It's absolutely ravishing. Dubrovnik and the coastline. They film in Iceland, they film in Ireland, and they film in Morocco. And the cast is... Uh, a lot of English people. A lot of English, yes. 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 Because we pitch up, we know our lines, we're grateful to be employed. We don't ask for caravans and chefs and um, masseurs. Uh, we're all quite modest people and we behave ourselves. And that's why we're employed. And after Game of Thrones, have you got future planned out or any I'd more I'd love to do Rachel? another play with... And I'd love to do a play with Rachel. Yes, I would. The wonderful thing about my profession is you never know what's around the corner. Things crop up and you just drop everything and go. Well, it's bound to be surprising because it always is, you know. So, uh, as you say, I'm behind the times. I'm going to have to catch up first with Game of Thrones. And I look forward to doing that. And anything else you may do because it's always it's always interesting. Dame Diana Rigg, that's a lifetime's ambition fulfilled on my side. Uh, thank you very much indeed. And thanks too to my producer, Sarah Cropper. This has been a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio and on 88 to 91 FM.